0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the editor in chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Musculoskeletal pain disorders, including low back and neck pain, are right up there at the top of the list of conditions that contribute to the burden of disease across the world. And today we're focusing on what you can do to help prevent neck pain. What are the best bets for exercise approaches? PhD candidate Florian Teichert and Professor Daniel Bellavi join us from the University of Applied Sciences in Borkum, Germany to discuss which exercises and why they might work. We use their recent systematic review published in JOSPT as a launching point for our discussion, and you can find the link to the open access paper, plus a blog post and an infographic that summarizes the key points in the show notes. Okay, here's the episode. Florian Taishet and Dr. Daniel Bellavie, welcome to JOSPT Insights.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you, Thank you.
0: It's really great to have you on board today chatting all about neck pain and how to manage or maybe how to prevent, more importantly, neck pain. I'm going to jump straight in with the questions. And Florian, let's start with you. How much of a problem is neck pain in the workplace? Who does it affect most? And I guess what I'm asking is how how big is this problem?
1: Well, it's a, it's a pretty big problem. We We all know the headline like Back pain is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And if we just look at the musculoskeletal disorders, neck pain follows directly after back pain. So globally, it's a big problem. And especially in the workplace, especially among office workers, the incidence rates, the yearly incidence rates are pretty high. Like in the general population, around 15% will develop a new episode of neck pain over a year. but If you look at office workers, many studies show us that 30% will develop neck pain during the course of a year.
0: It's a really high number. And we hear a lot, I think, or I feel like we hear a lot about the global burden of disease of of back pain, as you mentioned right off, off the top there. It sounds to me like neck pain is something that we really need to pay attention to. Now, Florian, You talked a little bit about the burden of neck pain. I guess if there's something that's a big problem in the world, then many of us want to try to prevent that. So let's talk about the sorts of of interventions that that one might think about delivering to prevent neck pain. How does that happen either in the clinic or the workplace environment? Is it a one-to-one kind of approach with individual clinicians or practitioners delivering something to an individual person? Or can we get a bit more creative and deliver effective programs in the contexts where people are experiencing their neck pain in schools, in workplaces, for example?
1: I mean, in our review, which we we just conducted, there were quite various approaches to interventions took place completely at the workplace itself. So it was like partly supervised exercise during work or after work. But there were also like a study where people just did an, a working program, a progressive working pro- program. It was still work related because from the employee, they got like financial incentives. If they reached their step count, their defined step count, some are related to work, but some were more like individual interventions, some group interventions with your colleagues. So various ways seem to work.
0: There's a lot of scope for work in this space. And we're going to get into your review that you've both led a lot of really important work in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation space, particularly in systematic reviews. And many of our readers will know about systematic reviews, will love them because when they're done well, they pull a lot of information together and synthesize it in a way that's helpful for for people when they're working at the coalface of daily practice. You alluded to the review, Florian. So, Daniel, let me go to you. What works for preventing neck pain? What do we know from the literature?
2: Different forms of exercise can prevent neck pain. The way that I interpret the results, similar to some of my prior work in, in, in intervention, exercise interventions for back pain, there doesn't appear to be any particular individual kind of intervention. Okay, yes, there are only five studies? So it was hard to, we couldn't do a what we call a subgroup analysis to look at different kinds of exercise interventions. But how well they worked was pretty similar for the different kinds of exercise interventions. The way I interpret that would be to say that it doesn't really matter as much exactly what kind of exercise intervention you do, but the point is that you are intervening.
0: Florian, when you're at the clinic or in the workplace working as a clinician, as a physiotherapist doing what you're trained to do, how do you use this kind of information? Daniel alluded to how he might interpret those results as, you know, different exercise therapy is going to work for different people, which is I guess a kind of reassuring thing as a physiotherapist.
1: Yeah, I would completely agree. I'm always happy when the research uh, shows us that we have like multiple options because every, after all, every patient is an individual and the better we can fit it to them and still have an effect, like know that you can do that, but also that what do you like? Like this shared decision-making part and, and really fitting it to the person. I think I always like this approach.
0: And Florian, was there anything in the review that didn't work, anything that people listening should avoid if they're trying to help people prevent neck pain?
1: We just uh, specifically looked at, at exercise and there every study showed a preventive effect, although with uncertainty without getting too technical here, but like the meta-analysis, it, it gave us the power to, to look at the overall average preventive effect. But Some studies were like smaller, and so therefore the effects were a bit uncertain. But there was no clear clear signal that anything doesn't work at all. But we only looked at exercise.
0: Daniel, how does exercise work?
2: That's something we're trying to look at in our research group as well. To how do interventions actually work, including exercise, and that's part of the PhD of of, Tobias SOAS issues in my team as well too, looking at different components. So the way we we conceptualise how interventions work is you have three components. One is the, what we call non-specific effects, so things that would happen anyway over time. So there's natural history, illnesses or, or pain symptoms develop over time in a, in a in, often in a typical way. Say so acute back pain, as I'm sure you know, or acute neck pain, pain tends switch reduce over time no matter what you do. Right, it won't always go away, but you know that's that's part of the natural history. That's one part of how 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 an intervention works—that's part of the the effect of my treatment. What will happen over time? The, the other component is, of course, the, the specific effects. So, actually, what the, the the physiological mechanisms of how the intervention is supposed to work—whether it's on pain pathways or uh, whether it's making certain muscles strong or whatever that might be—and then there's also the third component, which we which is termed contextual effects. So, the the effects of the interaction. Between clinician and patient, my beliefs as a clinician as to what I, I'm convinced works and what I you know, espouse to, to patients and what a patient might might think it works better for them or what they prefer. And those three different areas that impact how, the way we understand it at least, how an intervention works. So in terms of exercise, you'll have, sure, some, some specific effects of the exercise, whether it's in pain processing or muscle strength and those sorts of things, Sure. But there'll be these other aspects of, uh, at least when it comes to existing pain syndromes. Prevention is of course different because you don't have uh, existing symptoms to which develop over time. It's 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 amazing how similar some very different interventions are in terms of their effect on a on a on a a syndrome or on a on a on on pain symptoms. Pulling some numbers out of the air here, but I mean, say if exercise is about fifty results in 15 vast points improvement in chronic back pain, right? That's what the most recent problem you showed on average, about 15 vast points. And I'd have to pull out some numbers for some other interventions, but I mean, say, manual therapy may, may result in, in uh, similar or less, or maybe let's say education or back school, for example, right, may result in, in also reasonably large effect sizes. right? Now, the thing is, those are very different dimensions. One's exercise and one's, say, education thing or manual therapy. The postulated specific physiological pathways are very different, but they both have a, have a reasonable effect. So what, what's behind that? It can't just be the physiological effects of, of say, exercise alone. And then coming back to how, how exercise works, well, part of it will be, you know, maybe being more aware of your posture or maybe being... Um, having stronger muscles, but it could also be some other factors as well it probably is.
0: Now, Florian, can you give us a little breakdown? Let's build on what we've just heard from Daniel there about the non-specific eff- effects, the specific effects and the context when it comes to an intervention and an exercise intervention. Can you give us a little flavour of what you saw in this systematic review across the range of different, different exercise programs for preventing neck pain?
1: Like I said, there was like a, a basic walking program which showed in the faith, which is is great. I think it's very low barrier, low entry. Nearly everyone can take a walk. So, a progressive walking program with uh, financial incentives, where we have again like the the workplace employee component. Two uh, studies investigated like an upper body uh, resistance exercise program with with dumbbells or, or bands like your your shrugs, your uh, your front and side raises, like everything that targets like your neck and shoulder uh, musculature. And one program was also pretty low load, like some basic stretches for the neck muscles and the classical deep neck flexion exercise performed uh, regularly uh, throughout the week.
0: I think the beauty of this, as you say, is that there was no one specific program that was better than another or stood out above another. And as you alluded to before, it's very much that shared decision-making approach of talking with the person and saying, hey, what's going to work for you in your context? What do you like to do? What's going to get you motivated to continue? And having in the back of your mind that, well, I could prescribe some very specific neck-focused exercises, whether it's strength or, or range of motion, stretching type exercises, or I could also think about, or and I could also think about building in some more general physical activity. Now, Let's talk about dose and effects, really. Daniel, how long do we need to have a meaningful and lasting effect when we are prescribing an exercise program?
2: If you're looking at pain, questionnaire-based outcomes, so pain, disability, based on the literature, the systematic review literature so far, it's probably fair to say that there's a a step effect of, you know, doing any intervention is giving you an effect. There is some relationship, I mean, in terms of published data on measure aggressions, showing some kind of linear relationship between some exercise dose variables, say, frequency per week or, you know, duration of the intervention, the jury is still very much out as to, you know, how much you really need to do it. And, I mean, my hypothesis right now in any case is that based on what we've seen so far in the literature, that you've got your initial effect of doing any exercise and that they maybe a non-linear relationship over time between volume of exercise and and, and effects, but doing more and more exercise really gives us more and more benefit, which I'm sure it will but when does the law of diminishing returns eventually diminish enough to not be worth doing more?
0: It's also reassuring to know that researchers are tackling these important clinical questions. I think one of the important things that you're trying to do in the clinic is to work out well how much an intervention do I give someone? How do I How do I progress this intervention? And then for how long do I prescribe it? So all of these questions about how much dose to get, how much effect is a really important question. So it's nice to know that people are, are studying that.
1: Especially for the prevention area that we would just need more trials. I mean, if we compare, we found five studies. If we compare it, if it's like some network, Meta analysis about back pain or neck pain. You have like tons and tons of actual treatment studies, but prevention is is rarely addressed.
2: Florence 100% right. There's just, is not enough studies for prevention to really be clear about, you know, dose and those sorts of things. I mean, taking data from, as uh, Florian flags say, from network meta analysis. You know, there's a number of exercises, at least for existing pain syndromes. That there's enough data to say hey, different kinds of exercise will work. All these different forms of exercise appear to work for, say, both chronic back pain or maybe for chronic neck pain, right? There's also an meta-analysis published a while ago, a couple of years ago, and there's different forms of exercise that work. The effect sizes, you know, more or less, similar. Even though some some are, some effects seem to be larger than others, but they're pretty similar. So, my take-home message. Talk to your patient about what, what works for them. Okay, you so say these are the different kinds of exercise we could do. Right. And what what works better for you? What works better for your life? You know, and try to find a way to, to find a solution that that works with the patient likes and that works that the patient as well too. And that would be my take home message for that, from that kind of information as applied to say neck pain or neck pain prevention, most likely is to work work with something you know, that works for the patient. You, you, I, I'm happy to go for a run, but I don't want to go for I I don't want to go somewhere.
0: Find something that sticks, I think, is the is the key message here. It's not so much what you do, it's finding something that, that people feel works in their life and that they can continue with. Now, Florian, I'm going to wrap us up here and go much bigger picture, and you've got license to speculate and take your researcher hat off for a little bit. Many chronic musculoskeletal conditions that folks listening today will help we will see in the clinic and help people manage in the clinic. These sorts of conditions, they wax and wane, they, they flare up, they settle down, and that continues over time. How can we get better? We either as clinicians or we as a broader members of society, how can we get better at managing these sorts of long-term conditions? Because they're very prevalent. You talked about that right off the bat, that these are very common conditions. They affect lots of people in the world. So how do we get better at delivering the types of interventions or the types of physical activity or exercise programs that are going to make a difference to people's lives? How do we solve the burden of chronic musculoskeletal pain in 30 seconds? <laughs> Here's your Nobel Prize pitch. Uh,
1: I wish I wish I knew, but, but one thing that I... Observed in my short term in the clinic and that, that you always hear from like, you know, like patients, uh, who, who share their stories, like Gilletta Belton or, or others. It's like that if we just, I mean, that this is like a multi system thing, but if we just look at what we at as health professionals can do, especially for these like persistent disabling conditions, it's like also work on all like, Soft skills like the, the, these, these basic stuff. Like so many patients say they, they never listened, or um, I could never tell my story that didn't validate me. It just rushed me. And you, you can't improve with, with that kind of care, of course. And no, it doesn't matter if any research shows this will has the effect if you can't get this alliance and. Yeah, or humanity in healthcare. It's that that would be one point I think that's really important, especially for these chronic disabling conditions.
0: I like that humanity in healthcare feels like a really important thing, and and I like that you raise the the idea of those interpersonal skills or core skills. I've seen people talk about communicating is really important, listening is really important, the the skills that are beyond simply prescribing the exercise program or knowing which exercise program to prescribe. Daniel, what would you add to this list of or what would you add to the conversation and and invite people to think about today when we're trying to solve this big, big picture problem of burden of musculoskeletal conditions?
2: The main keys that I try to say to think about is hey, be be aware of what the normal development of this diagnosis is. You know, it's be able then to advise your patients what they can expect over time. And be be ready to advise patients, or if that usually there's a pretty good brief summary as well too to get up to speed on different conditions, having like pain and back pain as to what uh, what will happen over time, what what are the current recommended management,s what are the self management self management approaches as well too, and and as Florian was saying, I think being able to just work with to to, to communicate with people and, and listen and, and exchange ideas because. The, the actual specific treatment effect of an actual intervention is, is only a, one part of it, right, one part of the picture. And there's so much more of all the stuff as also as fluorine well decay, all the stuff that's going on around outside of it, that you know, actual mechanistic stuff is such a big, such an important part of patients having outcomes So getting better.
0: And I think this is a massive problem and, or this is a, a big society-wide issue to solve. So putting you both on the spot and saying fix chronic musculoskeletal pain is a little unfair. I'm really glad that we've got to that place of this is a society-wide thing. And for us all to work together is, is ultimately how we're going to move forwards. And part of that is going to look like what we deliver in the clinical practice setting. Much of it is going to look like what people are doing to manage this relapsing remitting condition on their own or with some support as they need it. So there's many different facets and Florian and Daniel, I'm really grateful for you joining us today on the podcast. Your team is doing a lot of important work at synthesizing what is known, using that to then drive the next round of research questions. And as you say, looking at a, a very focused mechanistic perspective and then broadening that to a much more general, what can we do in the clinical practice perspective? So Florian, Teichet, Dr. Daniel Bellavie, thanks for joining me today on JOSPT Insights.
2: Thank you, Claire, for having us.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app.